Recording. All right. So Karen A. Chase is an independent author and daughter of the American Revolution with the Commonwealth chapter in Virginia. Her first novel, Carrying Independence, I have mine right here, is book one of a three-part founding document series. It's historical fiction about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It is a nominee for the 2020 Library of Virginia Literary Awards, was awarded number 12 on Shelf Unbound's 100 Best Indie Books of 2019. Her first book, Bonjour 40, a Paris travelogue, garnered seven independent publishing awards. Karen was a Virginia Foundation for the Humanities Fellow for the 2019-2020 academic year with a residency at the Library of Virginia. Originally from Canada, Karen is now Chasing Histories from Richmond, Virginia. So I'm now going to turn it over to you, Karen. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I very much appreciate you tuning in. This, it's a lovely evening here in Richmond. I don't know what it's like where all of you are. Um, I very much want to thank Sarah Nisha and everyone at Francis Tavern and Mary for coordinating all of this with me. Um, and more importantly for Francis Tavern for and the Sons of the Revolution for preserving that space and allowing historians and writers like me to come into a space and physically feel what it's like so that we can better write about it. I'm going to share my screen here and we'll get going. As Sarah mentioned, I will take questions at the end uh, and I'll have information about the book and things like that at that point as well. So without further ado. <laughs> so Caring Independence is a novel based around the factual information about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And the idea came to me for this work while visiting Berkeley Plantation. I was on a tour of the plantation trying to figure out what life was like in the 18th century for another book project I had. And as the docent moved us around the room, he, around the house, he mentioned that Benjamin Harrison owned a Berkeley Plantation. This is about 45 minutes east of me here in Richmond. And he pointed to this copy of the declaration sitting on the desk and he said, not all the men were in the same room on the same day on August 2nd to sign this document. Seven of them were missing and there's no historical record of how they signed this document. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's a far better story than the one I'm working on. And I ran home and did my due diligence in investigating and the first person I ended up writing was Pauline Mayer. She wrote a wonderful book called American Scripture about the Declaration of Independence. And not expecting to hear back from her, I told her what my story idea was and did she have any resources she could send me to that would verify the whereabouts of these men specifically or was there a hole here for me? And that afternoon she wrote me back and she said, I know of no collection to send you to. The story sounds fabulous. You're off to the races. And I was. So it was a wonderful endorsement for me to get going. And of course, the first thing that I then had to learn beyond what Pauline Mayer had taught me about the declaration was everything about it I could possibly absorb. And I also had to like drill down and find a way to describe the declaration to people that were not in the DAR or the Sons of the Revolution who may not understand what it really was. And I describe it within the book, but also it's a match to a powder keg. The Declaration of Independence, the wording of it went on to spawn more than 50 other declarations around the world since it was drafted in 1776. It was a contract. Most people see this copy, as you see here, they see lots of these around and think there are multiple versions of this, but there is one sole copy with all the signatures. And it was a contract between the men. They were merchants, they were lawyers, they were businessmen who understood the value of a contract. And if the king was going to come in or was already here really, and his army was already here, if he was going to come in and try and pit the colonies against one another, what better way to understand that we were united in a cause than to have one contract with all the signatures from all 13 colonies. So I also described it as the biggest Dear John breakup letter in history, and it does follow a template. If 
for any of the women that were on here, I am sure you wrote a breakup letter to a boy when you were a teenager. I know I did. And you actually follow the format of the declaration. So this is a great way to remember the declaration. So there are sections. Some historians believe there are as many as six. I like to break it down into four. It makes it a little easier. So the green section here at the top, of course, is the preamble. And in the teenage breakup letter, it's where the girl outlines all the things she thought a relationship would be. And this is what we do too. The declaration defines that we seek life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that all men are created equal. It is the ideal relationship we thought we were going to be having underneath the king. And then, of course, what does the girl do? We put the long list of things that the boy did wrong. And this is exactly what happens in the declaration too, in this big blue section here. And that is the grievances. There are 27 grievances. And we know they're about what the boy king did wrong because they all start with he, or the majority of them start with he. He quartered troops in our home. He sent troops to our shores in peacetime. Those types of things are in the grievances. And then of course, once you finish listing everything that's been wrong, you then say that it's time to break up, that you've tried again and again. And this is where some historians split it into two and call one section the vain appeals, that we have appealed to you and gotten nothing in response but repeated injury. And therefore we are declaring ourselves true and separate. And then of course, the big signature section at the bottom. And this is an area that was really important to me as a novelist wanting to write factually based fiction is what proof do we have that those men were not in the same room at the same time? Of course, there are letters that go back and forth between the founders at the time. Richard Henry Lee, one of the founders from uh, Virginia, he was unable to attend due to illness. He wrote Benjamin Franklin saying he was unable to attend. Could you please just sign it for me? And of course, Ben Franklin said, no, this is unanimous, but individual signatures. So no, uh, no forgeries here. Unlike the constitution, which had a double signature on it, but that's for another story. Um, and if anyone ever asks you, do you think the founders really knew what they were getting into and that they were making history? You point to this inkwell in this image. So Ben Franklin had Philip Singh, who was a silversmith in Philadelphia, create this inkwell for the sole purpose of signing important documents within Congress, and specifically as the new Congress developed toward the United States. So they filled it with an ink, a gall ink created by Timothy Matlack. And on August 2nd, when those men got together, they all signed using this inkwell. But as we've been through the different uh, restorations of the declaration, we see that some of those signatures have faded at a different rate, indicating that the ink used for some of the signers was different than those of August 2nd. And the order and Matthew Thornton are tied together as another reason why we know that they were not all there on August 2nd. So if we look down here at the missing signers that are all along the bottom, first of all, the men were very organized in how geographically they were gonna sign it. So over here, starting with the very fabulous name, Button Gwyneth, this is Georgia. And we go all the way from the Southern colonies to the Northern colonies by signer. So they all tried to sign together in those colonies. Um, but you'll notice over here, when we get to the bottom, here's Oliver Wolcott from Connecticut but, Connecticut, but there is Matthew Thornton down in the bottom right. And the reason that Matthew Thornton is last in signing it and he is not signing it with his fellow brethren from New Hampshire is it was up to each colony how many representatives they felt needed to sign the declaration. New Hampshire decided they needed one more but they didn't decide until September of 1776. So more than a month after the formal signing Matthew Thornton was brought in and he has signed out of order. The final proof was related to a woman's name that is on a copy of the Declaration of Independence. And this is typically when most of the women in the room say a woman's what? So who was she? She was Mary Catherine Goddard. 
So as the calendar turned from 1776 to what they called the year of three sevens, the Congress had left Philadelphia thinking the British troops were coming in. And as the calendar turned, they had a bigger problem within the army. And that is that some of the soldiers were beginning to drop out. By this time they had um, spent six months with their enlistments. They were losing every campaign they'd been in from the Battle of Brooklyn all the way up to White Plains. They'd lost every time. And on top of it, a lot of the soldiers were farmers. And if we were gonna lose and we were gonna remain British, they needed to get home and plant crops in the spring. So they were dropping out rapidly and Congress said, perhaps there's another reason. And that is that the men don't know who they're standing behind. And that problem came with the fact that until this point in 1777, there had been no copy of the declaration circulated in the colonies that showed the names of the men who had signed it. So in 1777, they put out the call toward to printers in the Baltimore area saying, we want to print 200 copies with all the signatures listed below. And Mary Catherine Goddard was not only running her brother's print shop, she was the postmistress of Baltimore. And because she had that role as we became the United States, she's also the first federally female paid employee of the United States. And she volunteered to print those 200 copies. So her copy, if you look at here, it's dated as January 18th, but it is more likely that she, this is when Congress issued the order to have it printed. She printed it in February or January, or February or March of that year. And if you look under Delaware, Thomas McCain or Thomas McKeon, depending on how you pronounce it and where you're from, he was one of the signers with Delaware and he had not yet signed it. Much, much later on, when the founding fathers were arguing over whether or not we should celebrate July 2nd or July 4th as the National Independence Day, uh, Thomas McKean chimed in and he said, we should be celebrating neither. We were not officially the United States until my signature went on that document, making, us that, making that contract complete. And then that Thomas McKean fails in his letter to tell us when or where he was on that date. So we're not really sure when that final date went down. Some uh, historians believe it was as many as eight months later. So just after Catherine Goddard had printed her, Mary Catherine Goddard had printed her copy and some think it was as many as eight years later when he came back into Philadelphia to begin working on the constitution. So, but one thing we do know for sure is Mary Catherine Goddard was a bright woman and she typed her typeset her own name onto those copies. So she is the only one that has her name on a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Now, beyond that, when you're writing a book about someone carrying the Declaration across the colonies through the whole of 1776, uh, I had to learn a tremendous amount about the American Revolution. I became a DAR while I was working on this project. And as I was telling uh, Mary and Sarah before we started, I could not have done it without Francis Tavern. I had made an appointment with Jennifer Patton, who was working at Francis Tavern at the time. Because I am in Virginia and we see George Washington as the president, I needed to learn about him as a general. And when I came up to Francis Tavern, Jennifer and her cohorts brought me into the office, pulled books and maps from the shelves. I spent two hours with them and I learned about George Washington and the Battle for New York and Barnett Schechter's book. And when I left Francis Tavern, Jennifer said, oh, you must hit these four or five spots on your way while you're up here doing this tour, this intensive tour. And I was on my way out the door of Francis Tavern when Jennifer came running out and she said, I'm on a lunch break, I'll just take you to all the places. So if it weren't for Francis Tavern and Jennifer, I don't think I would have learned as much about New York. Um, and Unfortunately, I didn't have people like Jennifer in all the places, and I really had to dig deeply to find some of those inaccurate or complete stories. Once you find a hole as a novelist, you want to fill it with fiction, but I also wanted to put fiction um, inside of a series of facts. So I, one of the 
biggest things that I ended up learning, and we're going to cover three of them today, a land issue, prison ships, and women in the revolution. But one of the biggest things I learned about was this land issue and how important Fort Pitt was in what was going on in the revolution in 1776. So this image that you see here is Fort Pitt at the time. And the Allegheny River is on one side, the Monongahela on the other, and they both flowed into the Ohio. You can see the treaties that the British had made with various nations, uh, the Six Nations, uh, Shawnee, um, the, quite a number of them at the time. And what ended up happening was because we separated, it dissolved all the treaties that had happened before. The Treaty of Fort Stanwix is the one that drew this north-south red line all of the Americans or colonists were to stay east of it, and all of the Native Americans had free run of the land to the west of it. But when that treaty dissolved, now you have people wanting that land. And that land was incredibly important. It was a fertile bowl of mountains, connected waterways. It was the main artery into the Illinois country in which you could ship supplies, uh, goods, firearms, even Negro slaves. And so now the valley was the, all open for the taking. Uh, and the other problem was it's not yet surveyed. So when we look at Fort Pitt at the time of the American Revolution, and you look at the lines that we know of where Virginia and Pennsylvania are, we hadn't surveyed that far west. So anything beyond there becomes really wanted by a number of groups, including Pennsylvania and Virginia. They're both vying for that property as a state. We all know how that ended up. But uh, Congress, of course, wants it so they can control those waterways. There are also individuals who want it. And one of the individuals who wanted it the most is George Washington. And I have a statistic here that the Library of Congress observes that between 1747 and 1799, Washington surveyed over 200 tracts of land and held title to more than 65,000 acres in 37 different locations. And at one point he had bought 15,000 acres of it in the Fort Pitt area. So George Washington wants it, Congress wants it. Of course, the native tribes want it because it is their fertile family and uh, legacy hunting grounds. So there are a number of nations that are out there, but the one that I chose to focus on uh, was the Shawnee. And the Shawnee for me held an interesting facet to them that not a lot of the other nations did. And it was a piece that I really didn't learn about in school. And that is that they were quite divided. Uh, there was Blue Jacket, who's the gentleman on the bottom left here. And there is Cornstalk, also known as Hokalesqua. And they had met, they had both fought at the Battle of Point Pleasant earlier, but come 1776, they divide and Blue Jacket wants to side with the British. And we often hear this story, right? They either want to side with the British or the Americans. And Cornstalk doesn't want that at all. He wants to remain Shawnee, which I think is an in interesting um, standpoint that we're not yet hearing when it comes to our struggle for independence that they wanted independence too. Uh, so the two of them divide and George Washington and Congress decide to send in Colonel Morgan. Uh, he is the agent for Indian Affairs in 1776. He's very well loved by a number of Native American groups. Uh, they have nicknames for him. Was I muted there for a minute? Am You're I back, back now? Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so he has these different nicknames because they're so familiar with him. He speaks more than five languages and he decides to hold a treaty at Fort Pitt. So in my research, I find this one line that says Colonel Morgan and 650 Indians, as it was called in the reference that I used, uh, gather at Fort Pitt in the fall of 1776 for the first ever American Indian Treaty. And a treaty to the Native Americans at that time is not, it's not a document, it's a discussion. It's an, a way to understand both sides of what we're talking about here. Um, so I went on a hunt thinking, well, I 
this will be great because I want to show this Indian perspective in the book, but I need to have as many facts as I can compared to what I'm finding for the white man's story. So I, I go to Fort Pitt. And while I'm at Fort Pitt, I see the usual diorama in which they talk about the warring tribes of the Shawnee. There isn't this other component that really explains well uh, their desire to remain uh, in their own nation, essentially. And so I then go on to looking at uh, newspapers from the time which are quite jaded and this is an example in which they talk about the Mingos and the Wyandots killing other white people. Um, so I keep coming up against this story again and again and I'm getting books sent in to me at my local library from other collections hoping that if it says Colonel Morgan an American Indian that at some point I will find information. And I was about two weeks away an editor was telling me, Karen, you have to cut this whole story. There's just not enough factual information here. And you certainly can't make anything up and nor did I want to. Um, when I got a call from the Library of Virginia saying a book I'd ordered from California had come in and it was the dissertation of a gentleman named Gregory Schaff. Gregory Schaff back in 1984 had worked much harder than me at finding that information. He had gone to all the homes of the descendants of all the major players from that treaty. And when he was about to give up, a woman said, I don't know if I have what you need, but there's a big trunk in the back with a bunch of family journals in it. You're welcome to look through it. And in there were Colonel Morgan's journals with play by play, day by day, three weeks of laying out what happened at the treaty. And this is what happened. So there were 640 chiefs and warriors who gathered together from the Six Nations, the Delawares, the Munsees, the Mohicans, and the Shawnee. There were 300 whites representatives of the colonial army and Congress who came in for the treaty. Cornstalk and Colonel Morgan were the leaders of that treaty and the two of them led the discussions over a number of weeks. Netawatwees, the gentleman on the right, he was considered the grandfather of the Delaware and the Delaware were considered the grandfather over all of these various nations. And Netawatwees is, as you can see there, he is almost a hundred when they decide to hold this treaty. And he's, I think it takes him nearly three weeks to come into the treaty. At a couple of weeks into the treaty, the Mingos who you can see are not attending, they are in fact warring and news of the trouble that they are causing for the white men comes into the treaty. The treaty is starting to break down. People are getting very nervous about who, which side they're gonna go with here. And then Netawatuis dies and his death ends up ringing out like a wind over the colonies. And all of the warring nations, including the Cherokee, who are also not here, they drop their warring hatchets. They come in for this massive funeral and they bury Netawatwees at the tip of Fort Pitt. And it, they all agree that they are gonna drop the warring altogether and try to remain independent of the white man's war. And so what they send back with Colonel Morgan to Congress is a document not unlike our declaration. And it says that they would like their land rights recognized, titles transferred with a joint share in the proceeds, and in return, their many nations would offer neutrality. They would not raise arms on the frontier. They would not accept war wampum belts from the British, and they would stay out of the white family's war. And in return, they asked for just a few things, political sovereignty, freedom of religion, an international code of human liberties, a granting of natural rights, and a system of justice. And the very end of it, these are the words that they include in their declaration that they send back to Congress. It's incredibly moving, and but we all know the outcome from this. And the history behind that outcome is that by 1777, Congress has decided to remove Colonel Morgan because he is too sympathetic to the Indian nations. And consequently, uh, by 1778, when Cornstalk has gone back into, Pencil into Philadelphia to negotiate again, he and his son are both killed in a tragic murder um, by the colonists. And 
their losses are just some of the cost of war that you begin to learn about when you write a book about war. Um, and certainly I knew a lot of statistics that I'm sure many of you know, being in the Sons of the Revolution, we talk a lot about the battles and we talk a lot about those 4,500 men who died gloriously or not so gloriously on the battlefield. Um, but this I think was one of the most startling statistics to me was that there were as few as 11,000 and as many as 18,000 Americans who died on prison ships. Um, we were treasonous subjects. They were not, the British were not bound by the rules of war as a result. So the image here on the right and up here in the middle, those are both of the prison ship Jersey. It was one of the worst um, prison ships at the time. And it, just as an example, when the men lost at Fort Washington in November of 76, there were 2,800 men that went into one of the prison ships and 18 months later, there were only 800 of them left. Um, they were not fed well, they were not well cared for. Many of them went in ill. There were no medical facilities within there. The heat was atrocious in the summer. Um, it was frigid cold in the winter, as you can imagine. And if you were going to look for where these were now, it, it was in Wallabout Bay that the British put these ships. They were decommissioned warships. The masts were taken out. They were often hollowed out uh, down in the hull and layers were created for where you were an officer or where enlisted men went. They still, for some reason, separated that out. Um, but there were a total of 16 ships and the Whitby and the Jersey were the worst. 8,000 men alone died on the prison ship Jersey. Uh, and the way that this was actually really discovered, it wasn't documented very well. There were a lot of losses, clearly. Um, and some of the my DAR sisters have been going back through records to prove whether or not their ancestors died on those prison ships. But the way we found out the most details was where that is now is where the Brooklyn Naval Yards were built. And when they went to build the Brooklyn Naval Yards in the early 1900s, they were turning up the shores and they found bones because any man who died on those prison ships, the bones were brought over to shore and put in the sand. And so they began turning up these bones and they stopped the work. There is a monument in Brooklyn to the men who died in the prison ships. I always suggest when I'm on these calls or with DAR daughters, if you are looking for a preservation project, I would suggest you take up that monument. The area around it has been quite neglected along with the landscaping and the monument itself. And it's sorely unrecognized compared to a lot of the different battlefields. We know a lot of the accounts based on two uh, personal accounts of men who were inside those ships. Thomas String and, and Captain Jeb, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Jabbit's Fitch. Uh, one of them was on the prison ship uh, earlier in the war, but he was traded off and the other got in late enough that he was released upon, um, upon our winning. So these are two books if you're looking for anything related to that. Uh, there were really only three ways off the ship, exchanges, oaths. You could take an oath for the king and agree to then fight for the king or you could stay there and die. And one of the things that the other uh, method that we use to look at some of what it was like inside there are the illustrations. Certainly these firsthand accounts have amazing illustrations. The gentlemen made cross sections of the ship so you can see where things are. They listed what foods they ate, what they received in terms of care or not. Um, but we also have illustrations from inside the ship itself. Uh, John Trumbull, most of you know him for the big painting of the signing of the declaration that was made much later, but he was basically a war correspondent at the time and a fabulous illustrator, obviously. And so he recreated some of these images that we now know about what went on in the prison ship. But of course, as a novelist, it is very hard to try and describe what goes on inside of a prison ship using 13 or 11 or 18,000 men. So my focus has always been to bring it down to one. Uh, and in the book, I'm just gonna read a small excerpt 
hopefully everybody's awake. Um, about Arthur is one of my main characters and I decided early on that I would let Arthur bear the brunt of most of the war to show that I couldn't have my main character Nathaniel who's carrying the declaration do that. So Arthur is the one who ends up getting onto the boat. And his little rowboat is the first one to nudge against the curve of the hull. Arthur turns back behind his own small rowboat across Wallabout Bay and stretches far into the darkness. Over 2,900 men are on the boats. Redcoats face forward in every direction, cold to their captors. The man in front of Arthur retches into the murky water, given the smell coming from the putrid hull. The silhouette finally appears to Arthur. The mass grows steadily as they row nearer until he can see it fully, a monstrous ship with the muddy waters of Wallabout Bay sucking at her hull. Stripped of her masts and rigging, ports sealed shut, a few holes, each smaller than a hand and barred with iron had been cut at random. A deep groaning sound seeped from the holes. There are also, I mean, these are somewhat sad stories, but there are also very um, empowering stories that you end up finding along the way. Small characters, large characters, larger than life characters. And of course we tie it back again to the facts behind what was happening to people during that time to the average everyday person. I kept trying to bring it down to that saying, if it is about independence, what does that mean to each individual person? And of course, for the women, wartime really changes things. Although there are societal expectations and women are typically not going off to war, although we do have stories of that, we also see them taking on these very complex roles, including camp followers. If you are a married woman and you're living on a farm in the middle of Pennsylvania and you hear that the royal army, the largest army in the world is heading your way, you are far safer with your men in camp than you are by yourself on a farm. So we see a lot of women become camp followers. Many of the camp followers were actually paid. They were part of the um, payment that went out from, to the soldiers, but they got one third the rations that the men did. Some of them got pay paid in actual dollars, most of them in food and rum. Um, but aside from the camp followers, we also see them becoming business managers. Mary Catherine Goddard, who we talked about before is a fine example. And so is Deborah Franklin, who ends up taking over the delivery of the mail when Franklin is sent over to France uh, toward the end of the fall of 1776. Uh, we see them take up the mantle as the lead farmers, the trades like Mary Catherine, but we also see some of the original activity as activists. And one of those women is Esther DeBert Reed. Uh, many of us are familiar with Colonel Reed. He is aide-de-camp to George Washington. She has met him over in England when he helped her father repeal the Stamp Act. So she becomes very familiar with, uh, I'm sorry, her, her father repeals the Stamp Act, but Colonel Reed comes over and helps settle her father's estate. They end up marrying, they come to Philadelphia. She is the mother of six children, most of whom are born just before and during the revolution. In fact, uh, I saw Cookie Roberts give a talk one time and she described Poor Esther Reed, every time Colonel Reed came home from the war, she miraculously ended up pregnant. Um, so she is delivering of many children during the time of the revolution, but she's a citizen of Philadelphia and she's incredibly concerned that the women are not really holding their own here when it comes to supporting the war effort. She sees them still make, making up their hair and wearing these elaborate dresses. And yet she's getting information about these women who are camp followers and what the men are really enduring at the front. So she decides that she is going to create her own broadside and she publishes this long diatribe called Sentiments of an American Woman. And just as an example of what it is in it, she says, do not give in to the idea that you are subordinates. Judith of the Bible did not shrink from zeal, nor the women of Rome who cast off their weaknesses to dig trenches with feeble hands. She then goes on to talk about how we should 
grow calluses against my king, but we should also do it in support of gracious queens and sovereigns like Elizabeth and Catherine. She says, if, the Joan, if Joan of Arc, the maid of Orleans, can drive the British from our kingdom of France, then by the grace of God, we few, few women can weave the king out. So she calls for women to give up their adornments, and she begins this very first ladies' association of Philadelphia. She and 35 other women go door to door asking for money in support of the cause. And their goal is to really get money for the troops uh, to be able to um, give them clothing and food and more rum. And by one Quaker woman wrote that the women were so persuasive that sometime you just gave them money to make them go away, which if anyone is here in the DA or has done fundraising, you know how that feels. Um, but the mission was twofold to solicit that bounty money, but also to educate women about the importance of foregoing those different luxuries. The result of their efforts was $7,000 in their time, which is about $300,000 today, give or take. It's hard to really do the math. But, um, and Esther DeBert Reed wrote to General Washington that it is for the use of the soldiery, for linens and shirts, and to give the men hard dollars. And that began a letter debate between Washington and the wonderful Esther DeBert Reed where they wrote back and forth and Washington said, uh, you know, it's a great idea to make shirts, but you should purchase the linen and all of you should make the shirts. I think he had a little bit going on at the time. Uh, but I love that he and she started writing back and forth a little bit. He writes her again and says, oh, no, wait, I have a better idea. Rather than making shirts, why don't you give the money to me and we will start a bank for the country and we will dish out that money as we see fit. And she was really insistent. She really wanted that money to benefit the soldiers directly. So Esther DeBert Reed, <laughs> she starts getting letters from her husband saying, you have got to settle this and leave me out of this because he's working with Washington and it's making his life miserable. So she says, okay, fine, we will make the shirts. I shall now endeavor to get the shirts made as soon as possible, rather than giving them in any hard currency of their own. And the result is this. Unfortunately, Esther DeBert Reed does not live to see it. After her sixth child is born, she comes down with dysentery and she dies, leaving the family bereft. But the Women's Association makes 2,200 shirts. In the back of each of the neck of the shirts, the women sew tags into the shirts with their own names on it so that the men would know exactly who they were getting the shirts from. And Washington never did give any of the dollars to the men. And what was the result of that? A few months later, after the men had received the shirts in January 1781, elements of his Pennsylvania Continental Line mutinied and chief among their complaints and grievances was, was that they had not been paid in over a year. If he had taken the money and handed that to the soldiers, they may have stuck around. Um, thankfully for Washington, things began to improve over the next few years. But one thing that all of these stories taught me is uh, and it's based on this wonderful quote by our DAR past president, General Ann Turner Dillon, is that if you believe one can be too small or insignificant to have an impact, then you've never been in bed with a mosquito. And I feel like the revolution was that way too. It was a number of people all striving for independence, ordinary people like you and me trying to preserve the life that we have or trying to make it better. Uh, coming together to make that happen. And I have just a little video that is a book trailer and then I will go on to ask questions.
it means so very much to me that I finally, after all this time, have been able to join you at Francis Tavern and talk about the history behind caring independence. I, I'll now take Q&A. I do want to say I, I love meeting with book clubs about this book. There are a lot of uh, morality questions in it, a lot of what would you do if you had been Nathaniel questions. Uh, I also have an autographed copy store. I know a lot of people usually ask questions about that. Where can I get autographed copies? Um, and I will put that link in the chat so that you have it. But I also welcome you to just reach out and ask me any questions you might have if you're too shy to do so today. And uh, thank you again, Sarah and Mary and Francis Tavern for having me today. That was wonderful. Uh, I love telling the stories of individual people. I think it's just as important as talking about Washington. So <laughs> this book is, is right up my alley. And I found myself reminiscing about my high school boyfriend when we were talking about breakup letters. So <laughs> love that for my Thursday evening. Um, we had some great questions come in through the chat. A few people were asking July 2nd, July 4th. There's an August date thrown around. Do you right. want to just kind of talk about the difference between all of the dates that we seem to be celebrating or not celebrating? Or sure. So July 2nd is the vote on the resolution to separate. It's the one that Richard Henry Lee puts forth. And so that is what happens on July 2nd. Then very quickly, of course, we go into editing and trying to create the text of the copy of the declaration that we all know. And that happens over the course of a couple of days. So when we come back in on July 4th, when Congress comes back in on July 4th, what they are voting on is the agreed wording of the declaration. So when we celebrate July 4th, we're essentially celebrating the wording of the declaration, which is not sexy at all and not really, <laughs> it's not very fun. And it is a few days later that they finally have the reading aloud. It is um, July 8th, I believe, on the steps of Philadelphia, uh, the State House of Philadelphia, where they have the live reading with Colonel Nixon. And um, that is the first time that the public is really hearing about it. Uh, between July 2nd and July 8th is when that first sections of broadside, the Dunlap broadsides are made, which are those original 200 copies. And there were, um, I believe as of 1980 somewhere there were about 84 copies 82 copies of those and then a gentleman went and bought a frame at a flea market that he really rather liked and when he took the glass and the backing out there was a copy of that original Dunlop broadside in the back oh. he paid four dollars for the frame and uh it ended up selling at auction to for 1.82 million i think it was um it's a good yeah. investment it was a really good, good investment. investment. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as the August 2nd, I mean, it really, there is a secret journal that the Congress kept that had notes of the things they did not want to send to the king. And that is where we learn that the signers signed the declaration at the table. I'm very much on board for the dates that the declaration was read in each of the colonies for the first time. So New York City should be celebrating the 9th. Right. Yeah. And oh. that was a big one. They tore down the statue of King George III and hacked that uh, thing to bits. You know, they just made some bullets, you know, they were resourceful. It's okay. Right. Ability in 1776 was a thing. Yeah, that was a great story to include too. With Oliver Wolcott was going through there, the signer from Connecticut, who was not there on August 2nd. <laughs> and he had that thing dragged all the way back to Connecticut, where the townsfolk helped him melt that thing down. And I think it was as late as like the 70s, 1970s, they were finding bits and pieces of the horse's tail in farmer's yeah, fields up in Connecticut. They're still finding pieces, like they <laughs> keep popping up and it's... Right. No one's found his head yet, though. Oh, that's long gone. <laughs> that's, that's long gone. If somebody had found that head, it would, it would be publicized immediately. It would definitely I be. don't think anybody could keep that secret these days. No. Uh, I would like to know what your thoughts on the musical 1776 were because you did a whole entire chapter on the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> I haven't seen the musical. <gasps> oh no, no. I know, no. <laughs> I'm one of those people that hasn't seen it. Um, and I was late to the game on Hamilton too, but um, 
<laughs> you know, some of it, when you're working on a book like this, you want to stay away from stuff that's been doctored a little because you don't want to accidentally insert the wrong thing. So I was more of a, David McCullough was more my companion than the musical. That's fair. I do find when I'm doing research that the Hamilton musical kind of does get me in the the mood for it. And I'm like, I know it's not that real, but you know, you need some music in the background. You need some music. Yeah. I listen to uh, cinematic scores when I write. That's fair. <laughs> uh, I don't have a name, but somebody named iPhone asked, did any of the Native Americans who met Colonel Morgan visit Philadelphia to speak with the members of Congress? Yes. Cornstalk himself and his son did. Um, there may have been others, but definitely Cornstalk did. He was such a great orator, too, that um, there, so, there was an interview by, uh, in fact, I have it. I'm not even going to try and give you the quote. I will just say it. <laughs> a Virginia officer who saw Cornstalk speak at Camp Charlotte said, quote, I have heard the first orators in Virginia, Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee, but never have I heard one whose powers of delivery surpassed those of Cornstalk on that occasion. So he was very well spoken. And uh, yeah, so he was one of the main ones who came into Philadelphia frequently. And who wrote the treaty, this, the, the Fort Treaty? We don't know. We don't know who the scribe was. No. Wow. I love that hole. I mean, I picked it up a little bit, but <laughs> wherever I find a hole on who, who didn't, you know, no one knows who they, they had as a scribe for that. Yeah, I, I'm always ingrained to put your name on all of your work. So when you find somebody who hasn't put their name on these documents, you just go, oh, I know, I know. Preschool teachers just yelling at you. Like Gregory Schaff with that dissertation that he had done in 1984. I was very, very thrilled to find out that Gregory Schaff was still alive, first yeah. of all. And I emailed him and told him how grateful I was that he had written this dissertation because without it, my book would not be what it is. And he wrote me back that he was just so grateful someone had read his dissertation. <laughs> I get that. As a master's student, I understand that. Even if it does take a couple of decades, I'd be so, grateful. <laughs> and, and he's very excited. He's actually, you know, in this new digitized world now, he and I've been talking a little bit more these days because we want to do something at Fort Pitt about the misinformation or the lack of information. And um, he's digitizing all of his original notes, thankfully. So, Ooh. yeah. Yeah, that'll be really good. That's exciting. Melissa asks, is it true that one woman who was a member of George Washington's Secret Six Spies was on the Jersey? Oh, I don't know that. I really don't know that information, but if it is, hmm. I, I think it in the next book. <laughs> the reference to Agent 355, if I'm not mistaken, um, we, because we have the Talmadge memoirs, People sometimes ask us if the agent was somebody named Elizabeth because there was a Betty on one of the prison ship roles. Oh. So it's another one of those ties that you might have to, again, search, research, write a great book about, and then discover <laughs> all of the fun facts about it. Right. Interesting. Um, what, uh, Quarantina asks, once again, when was the last signature made on the Declaration of Independence? And we don't know. That was Thomas McCain. Uh, he was the last one to put that signature down. He did not disclose where or when he was, unfortunately. Not, a, not the historian we were all hoping for with him. He was too busy drafting constitutions, I think. So um, the general consensus is anywhere between eight months and eight years. And uh, unfortunately, no matter how much digging I did, I couldn't find it. If anyone <laughs> does, please let me know. I decided to go with the eight months time frame just because when you're writing a book that starts in July of 1776, to extend it that far out would have been exhausting for people. So, um, so I, I made it in, in the February, March time frame. I can imagine. Was there one story that you wanted to put in, but you couldn't find enough research for, or is that too soon for a, what are you working on next <laughs> kind of a situation? Um, I, I, in fact, yes, I did find some information about a, a, a woman who was around a lot at the time. Um, she's not mentioned in the book, but she is my next project. 
and that is Eliza House Trist. Okay. Um, a lot of historians who are working on Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe uh, scholarship, they use her a lot in the footnotes, and I am lifting her from the footnotes. She knew Thomas Jefferson. Her mother had the house in there in Philadelphia um, that the men stayed when they often came into the Philosophical Society or, and certainly by the time they worked on the constitution, uh, they stayed at her mother's inn and Eliza was there pre-war greeting all of them as they came into the inn and she got to know the founders quite well. And her husband in 1775 went to Natchez, Louisiana. And so she went West two decades before Lewis and Clark and kept a journal for Thomas Jefferson. And so I've been working on this journal of her um, expedition, but the House Inn and Eliza House Trist were two things that I would have really liked to have included. Uh, but between uh, that information and you know some other places I needed my characters to go in Philadelphia, that got cut. Um, but now I've had a Virginia Humanities um, Fellowship to work on that journal because it still exists. I've worked on that for a semester and then COVID hit and everything screeched to a halt. Yep. And now that the archives are opening again, like we were talking about before the show was, um, I'm just so excited to get back into the archives. And my first step is to prove that Eliza House Trist was an original patriot, paid the support tax for the American Revolution so I can qualify her as a DAR. So if anyone has any information about Eliza House Trist from Berks County or Philadelphia, she was in New York for a while, Virginia, New Orleans, please let me know. I would really appreciate it. <laughs> Exciting. I always like when I hear about a woman coming out of the citations and she becomes the main focus. She's <laughs> incredible. She's incredible. She she ends up living out her days at Monticello. Her grandson marries Jefferson's granddaughter. So all the descendants from that couple are also hers. So Exciting. I saw a few people interested to purchase the book. Uh, I want to ask, fabulous. what is the best way to support the author? How do we support Karen? <laughs> so I am an independent historian. So research, writing, and publication are all on me. So anything you can do in terms of um, purchasing the book, starting up a book club. I love chatting with book clubs about the book, as I mentioned. Um, that link that I've given you is the best way. It ends up with the most um, royalties coming to me by that autograph copy section. And then you get an autograph copy on top of it. Um, so that would be very delightful. And then if you follow my newsletter, you know, I share a lot of behind the scenes stories of what I'm working on. And I share advanced copies of books as they come out as well. So in addition to the Eliza book, you probably saw that this is a founding documents novel. Um, I'm going back to my original story on the Constitution as well. So the Constitution and the Bill of Rights will be the two books I work on after that. I am curious to know, when you did come to Frances Tavern and Jennifer showed you around, what was your most favorite piece that she kind of showed you as you walked around? Or it doesn't have to be Frances Tavern, but your, your, your leisure trip around the city. <laughs> well, you know, what I did love... What I love the most about traveling, and I went to almost, I think, all but one of the places I feature in the book, I traveled to all of them. Uh, it took me almost six years to research and write the book as a result, but standing in a place like Francis Tavern and seeing what, what the ceilings are like, um, I think there was a display on one of the tables when I was there of some of the playing cards and the pipes and some things like that, that people were using. Mm -hmm. There was also the, the fake food set up with the oysters and stuff like that. So it just, it enables you to stand there like a character or a person would and really get a sense of the space and the smells and where a broadside would be hung on the wall. So when you write it, you're right back in the room. Um, yeah, and that that's that's almost better than a you know a primary source document is to be in a primary source space. Yeah, I definitely find when we have our George Washington reenactor there for the fourth of December to, oh to do that reenactment, it I am very desensitized to that room because I've been there so much that as much as I am a historian, I do love that room. But to see 
children walk in to see it, to see people who have never been in the museum, see that reenactment, to see a Washington in that room, to see other reenactors in that room and watch their faces. I'm like, oh yeah, this is really important. This is really, really awesome. And it, it you know, brings me back to right. my first couple of months when I walked into that room and I was like, yeah, this room is pretty cool. Yeah, someone just wrote, I was in awe. I was too. And I think Jennifer, <laughs> you know, being there as well, you get a sense of where it is in Manhattan now. But when you talk with somebody like Jennifer or, you know, I got a tour of Philadelphia with Bill Ochester, who's one of the best Benjamin Franklin reenactors. Um, it's kind of, they, they end up tearing down the modern city and you end up seeing what it was like back then. So understanding how close to the water yeah. Francis Tavern was, you know, you really, standing in the museum, you don't get that. But when you speak with historians and they give you that sense of the reality of the world around it, I mean, it's that kind of thing is really invaluable. Yeah, it's, it's always one of the most difficult things. I always kind of make sure that the blinds are closed when people come in because across the street <laughs> is a giant Essen sign that's just lime green. And I'm like, you're not going to get into the spirit of no. anything if you see that no you can always excuse an ambulance or a fire truck going by but there's always just like a, a glaring neon sign behind you and it's <laughs> one of yeah. Uh, yeah they mentioned it feels like time travel it does to me too it, like, sometimes it can sometimes i really can. wish i could time travel so that's the second best i guess <laughs> so i always ask the ghosts uh our last question is one of my favorites so if you can dine with anybody at Francis Tavern, who would it be and why? <laughs> There's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. There's never a wrong answer. You know, it's so funny because just this morning I was watching Billy Crystal being interviewed on Jimmy Kimmel. And I thought, man, if I could dine with anybody, it'd be Billy Crystal. I want to shoot stuff out my nose. I know I'd be laughing so hard, but <laughs> I don't know that he's the right guy to bring to Francis Tavern. Um, Put a wig on any guy, they'll be colonial. It'll be fine. <laughs> He'd be a little bit different colonial. At least he'd try and behave like one. But yeah, <laughs> um, so I don't think Billy Crystal would be it. You know, um, I, I think I would want it to be with someone that would experience it, the awe of that moment equitably, you know, and I don't. So I'd have to go with an historian maybe. You know, I maybe Barnett Schechter because he wrote the battle for New York, but you know, I think I would also appreciate someone who's, you know, been in the presidential position, you know, any, you know, someone like Barack Obama would I think be quite interesting to sit in Francis Tavern with. Yeah. And, and have a beer and, and, you know, really talk history deeply yeah. and things like that, I think would be pretty moving as well. Only if he brings Michelle though, because she's rocking. <laughs> I very much agree with those answers. Those sound wonderful. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, my answers usually change depending on the week and what book I'm reading. So uh, yeah, I always, I always go back and forth with like, you know, somebody who's alive today or a sitting president or governor or senator. And, or I'm like, you know what, let me go back to somebody who was around in the 1760s. Oh yeah. So, then it would be Eliza Trist. Absolutely. Yeah. Down. There's, see, there's no wrong answer. It's kind of like what you're in the mood for tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and if they were fictional, it would have to be Nathaniel. It would yeah, have to be Nathaniel. For sure. I, I agree with you, Mary. My answer changes. My recent one has been Benedict Arnold because I just want to, I just want to talk to him. I just want to yeah. know. I have questions. <laughs> yeah. You just want to level with them sometimes and just kind of ask them. <sighs> Yeah. All right, um, but that is all of our time for this evening. Thank you so much, Karen, for the wonderful presentation. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mary, for facilitating our Q&A. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Again, the book is Carrying Independence. If you want to see what all this research created, you can get that. <laughs> the link has been in the chat a few times. And if you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with all of our programs, you can join our mailing list at francistavernmuseum.org. We have a couple great walking tours coming up. Um, if you want to experience that, that statue of King George coming down, you might want to check out our walking tours. We have some new offerings there. And you can also find information about our next lecture, which is coming up very fast on July 8th. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission to share the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you'd like to make a donation, you can also do that on our website. You can also find all of our social media handles there to stay up to date.
So thank you again for joining us for another Francis Tavern evening lecture, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks, everybody. I loved it. I appreciate being here with all of you. Good night, everybody. Good night.